What do you do when you've been successful in business and find yourself at midlife looking for significance beyond success? Well, you might just start your own nonprofit on education reform. We'll be talking with someone who did just that, Todd Williams on Good God. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome today to our conversation, Todd Williams. Todd, glad to have you with glad us. Glad to be with you. Todd is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Commit Partnership in, uh, Partnerships in Dallas, uh, and it is an educational advocacy group that has done remarkable things, uh, both for our own uh, school district here in Dallas and also surrounding districts uh, in Texas and he's been active also at the state level in education advocacy. We'll talk a lot more about that but uh, Todd as, as we get started I think a lot of people would like to know the connection between uh, your transformation of being a man who had pursued a career in business successfully. You were with Goldman Sachs and their, I guess, real estate investment uh, mm -hmm. division. And, yeah. uh, and that was a, a climb that was very successful for you. But now you've turned your attention uh, to something else. What was the motivation? How did that, how did that come about for you? Well, I, I have to go back a little bit in time. So, um, I grew up in East Dallas, went to Dallas Independent School District, Brian Adams High School, class of 78. And um, I went to Austin College and um, met a man there named um, Bob Mason. Okay. Uh, good last name. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, he was my head basketball coach. Okay. But over the four year period, he became like a second father to me. Okay. And uh, I was just really impacted by him. In fact, I named my youngest son after him. Mm -hmm. And. Um, we, and he just told me about doors that I could open when I didn't even know there was a door there. He introduced me to mentors. He, he really just had very high expectations for me academically and career, not just as a basketball player. Right. And so I became pretty close to him. So in 2000, uh, he got very ill very quickly mm -hmm. and he passed. And I went to his funeral up in Sherman, Texas, where Austin College is located. And I sat in that, I sat in that pew and saw lots of people get up and say the exact same thing that I would have said about him. And people were hard, it was hard for people to finish their sentences. They felt so deeply about him. And I remember walking out of that church that, that afternoon and thinking, I'm 40 years old. I've had success more than I would have ever anticipated coming out of Brian Adams High School back in 78. And yet, I just asked myself, what am I doing with my life? Because there's, if, if I died tomorrow, um, I'm not sure that people would be able to be able to talk about the impact that I had on their lives that he had on mine. And so uh, at the time, my wife and I uh, soon thereafter started doing um, college scholarships for kids. She went to SMU on a, on a full ride. I went to Austin College effectively on a full ride, a lot of Pell Grants and all that good financial aid stuff. I think my parental contribution my, was about $90 a year. That's all they asked oh, wow. of me. So to have an Austin College education for 90 bucks was pretty good. Um, and, um, and we started doing college scholarships and we were meeting high school kids. and. And we were just starting to understand their stories, uh, primarily students of color, uh, people who were finishing in the top 10% of their class, uh, going to college, and then coming back and saying, I wasn't ready, mm -hmm. I wasn't ready. Um, and then we just started getting more engaged in this work, and it ultimately got to the point where I felt like I was making money to give it away. Mm -hmm. And what I really felt like we needed was more people like me and others 
who would be get involved in a day-to-day leadership basis. So I retired in 2010 and shortly thereafter founded Commit. You know, when I listen to your story, it, it reminds me of the uh, uh, columnist David Brooks, mm-hmm. who has written lots of things about character, uh, and, and, and he talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues, mm. and how those are not the same thing. And a lot of people have to become more conscious of what it is they're feeding, uh, that resume virtues are the things that build a uh, a, a living for you, but eulogy virtues are those things that build a life. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like you made that switch in that moment, and, uh, and and that's been meaningful to you. Well, it did, and sometimes I refer to it as success versus significance. Ah, right. And um, and I remember thinking that here was a man who impacted me in terms of putting me on a career path and introducing right. me to mentors and telling me about things that he could do that I could do with my life. And here it was at his passing, he was no longer with us and he was influencing me again. Right. Uh, just by being an example of what he, uh, uh, what he uh, had meant to so many people, including me. Well, you know, for, for many people, uh, this starts with their own personal faith journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure how true that is for you, but you and I have talked a little bit about how uh, your own personal Christian faith is something that's that's come about a little later in life, mm-hmm. uh, and that your wife Amy uh, has Abby. Uh, sorry Abby yeah. excuse me mm-hmm. Abby has has had something to do with that as mm-hmm. well. And uh, t- can you can you talk a little bit about that and how that began to um, deepen your sense of of service? Sure. Well, when I grew up, um, I. I didn't, my family didn't go to church. Uh, when I did go to church, it was more social. I wanted to go and hang out with my friends, but I wasn't a regular church-going person. Um, and later in life, um, but my mom always did, my mom was very good about teaching me what I would call Christian values. I mean, it mm-hmm. was always about the golden rule. It was always about never judge anyone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. It was, um, and she would also, I think she was kind of a closet social activist, just justice activist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't until I really started going to church uh, with my wife, and just uh, she's a very spiritual person. I, I admire her greatly in that regard, and um, and then just and so ultimately we just decided that I think I was 42 at the time to have Mark Craig over at Highland Park Methodist um, uh, baptize me, and I remember feeling at the time excited about it but embarrassed by it, right? right in, in terms of just being. Yeah. Uh, being waiting that long in life to do that. Okay, but this is this is so great to, to hear because I, as a pastor, I also deal with people who have that sense that something is happening, something stirring in them spiritually, but uh, publicly they have a hard time acknowledging that and uh, and and being willing to take that that public step. So the fact that you did is is really a, I think an encouragement to others and a breakthrough in that regard. There's, there's a kind of, anytime you make a spiritual commitment and baptism is one of those things, mm-hmm. it's really a humbling thing, isn't it? It is. It really is. It really is. Um, but I also, I, I, it was important to me for my kids to see this. Okay. It really was. I wanted them to understand that this was important to their dad nice. and, um, and that I needed to make that commitment because obviously at some point we would be asking them to make the same commitment as well. Well, you know, I, I, I often say that I baptize people often because I baptize people. <laughs> that is to say, every time I baptize someone, somebody says, hmm, 
you know, look, look at that. What's happened in that person's life? And it makes them reflect on their own life then. Mm -hmm. and it, so it's an encouragement. It's a kind of a witness. So uh, that you thought about that for your kids is, is wonderful. But I'm sure there were a lot of other people impacted by that as well. So I think so. Uh, yeah. I hope so. We'll yeah, see. terrific. Well, when we think about um, the work you're doing now, do you sense that you have allies in the, in the religious community that you're working with, that you're able to depend upon? What's your perception of where um, religious leaders are and churches are uh, with respect to education reform? Um, I think they certainly see the injustice. I've spent some time talking with Pastor Carter at Concord Baptist quite a bit. Uh -huh. uh, he and I uh, have gotten to be good friends in this effort. Um, they, uh, they are increasingly informed about it. They see what is happening within our city. They see the incredible disparity in the haves and the have-nots, mm -hmm. and, and they know intuitively uh, why it's happening, and education is a primary driver of that. Mm -hmm. Pastor Carter, for example, I think is a former teacher, mm -hmm. uh, and a school teacher, so he's lived it day-to-day. -day. He's been inside in the classroom in the field. Um, I, obviously, I love their voice. I, I welcome their voice. Uh, you've written some great things. Uh, about this city and, and how education is so important to it. And um, I've met with Paul Rasmussen and, and uh, over at Highland Park quite a bit. And so they're getting increasingly engaged. I, I would obviously love for them to get as engaged as they can. Right. Um, because it, it, to me, if we can fix our education system and support it adequately, mm -hmm. I think it'll be transformational for our city for lots of reasons, not just economically, right. but also just the divides that we have by, by race, by income. I think we can bridge those significantly if we let everybody participate in the prosperity of Dallas. I don't think people realize when you say everyone participate in the prosperity of Dallas. You, you and I uh, live in communities and we experience the Dallas economy mm -hmm. in a way that many people in Dallas don't. Mm -hmm. And because we all live in uh, sort of um, bubbles. bubbles of our own experience, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard, especially for um, wealthier white Dallasites, to realize that according to the Urban Institute mm -hmm. study recently, Dallas actually ranks 274th out of 274 major cities in this country. Dead last. Dead last in, uh, in, in racial equity. Inclusiveness. And, mm -hmm. in, 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 in inclusiveness. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, it, it, what, I, what I often say to people is, it's it's very shallow. It really isn't meaningful to talk about the economy in general terms, mm -hmm. is it? It's because it's always where you are in the economy, and every economy has uh, strengths and weaknesses depending upon what's happening at a given time. Sadly, as you described, there are many people in Dallas who are not sharing in the prosperity, mm -hmm. uh, and. And, and, and the question is, you know, how do we increase the opportunity for people to, to be able to do that? And, and too often what I hear among people I talk with is, so you're trying to social engineer outcomes, and you're trying to redistribute wealth and uh, that sort of thing, and that's, that's socialism, and that's, you know, it, it's, it's not what make America great. But what I would answer to that is, is that if, if you, if you do believe in the free enterprise system and capitalism, then what you want is a growing pie, not just dividing the pie up differently, mm -hmm. but you also want more and more people to participate in and share in that prosperity and that yeah. wealth. Here's what I would say. Um, someone said this phrase and it really resonated with me. 
um, talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. There you go. And um, you can't look at the data and feel anything other than we have systemic problems that we have not changed. Yes. You cannot look at, someone said to me the other day that I haven't checked the math, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's true. Uh, most people would agree that to uh, have a living wage in this city, in this country, you need to have some type of education beyond a high school degree. It can be a technical certificate, a two-year degree, a four-year degree. If you're a low-income child in, in our region, you have about a one in 10 chance mm -hmm. of getting a living wage credential uh, six years after high school graduation. Wow. Someone said to me that you have a better chance of hitting the beaches of, of Normandy and making your way to Berlin than you did uh, as a low-income student getting a living wage credential in the city of Dallas. And that is indefensible, and particularly given my background, because I grew up in a thousand square foot rental house. We had a 10-year-old car that broke down every time. We didn't own a washer dryer. There was food insecurity at times. Um, but somehow, through great public education, great mentors, mm -hmm. great financial aid to go to a great college, mm -hmm. uh, I'm able to live the American dream. Right. And so if, if me, why not someone else, right? What, what made me special? Right. I would partially say, you know, some of the things that, and you have to understand when I was growing up and I, when I, up until the last few years, I kept thinking, well, I was a bootstrap guy. I worked hard, <laughs> education got me to where I am. But then the more I think about it and I reflect about it, um, I'm sure when I was going to public school in the late 70s, um, that I had great access to public uh, teacher, pub, great public school teachers and great resources and I suspect, based on what I've read, that in the late 70s, south, south of I-30, it probably wasn't the same dynamic, right? right? Yeah. And then, uh, obviously, I had great access to public, uh, to, to uh, private uh, college and financial aid. And then once you get into the business world, if you're a white male at that time, it's easier to navigate mm -hmm. that society than it was for someone mm -hmm. who might be a, a female of color, for example, is the opposite of there. And so I, I just think that we've got to decide whether or not we truly believe that everyone gets a shot at the American dream or not. And if we do believe that, and I believe it uh, to the, every bone in my body, that we have got to do some things in terms of investing in our kids and providing the resources so that the next Todd Williams or the next George Mason gets to be able to live that dream. Well, that's a terrific point for us to jump off from, I think, to begin to talk now about uh, commit partnerships and, and mm -hmm. the things that you're doing there mm -hmm. and uh, the, the Dallas Promise program mm -hmm. and some things like that. Let's take a break and hear a little more about commit and then we'll come back and pursue that. That'd be great. The commit partnership is focused on the powerful idea that every child in Dallas County should receive an excellent and equitable public education, preparing them to flourish in college and beyond. The partnership works with public and private schools, colleges and universities, foundations, nonprofits and businesses to solve DFW's biggest educational challenges. Find out how you can take the journey with us. Visit thecommitpartnership.org. We're back with Todd Williams, who is the chairman and CEO, also founder of The Commit Partnership. Uh, this education advocacy group uh, that is located here in Dallas, but also serves uh, surrounding uh, mm -hmm. districts and also uh, is, is influential in, in state education policy. Mm -hmm. uh, Todd, let's talk about uh, how COMMIT operates. You know, what, what do you do and how do you do it? Sure, so we're a partnership of about 200 different institutions 
So almost all the major school districts, the higher ed institutions, foundations, nonprofits, businesses, we're very data-driven. We look at what the data says, what are the biggest leaks in our education pipeline through workforce, and what are the things that we should be trying to do and support, maybe align policy, align resources, both private and public, to try and fix those leaks. Based on the data surrounding a, a child's journey in our region, we have honed in on three key areas to focus on first, which is one, ensuring that every child has a quality early childhood education by the age of, uh, by the age of eight and can read by third grade. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that they're supported by an effective teacher in each and every classroom, uh, hopefully the one that looks like the students that they serve. And third, that, that they believe that post-secondary education of some form is not only uh, accessible, but uh, affordable and supported. And those efforts are called Early Matters Dallas, Best in Class for Teachers, and the Dallas County Promise for Post-Secondary Completion. Let's go with the early education thing for sure. a moment. Uh, I, some years ago, uh, I founded a group called Faith Leap Dallas, and we had, uh, for a few years, we were working in the community to try to help parents and families read to their kids and get them ready in most at-risk uh, mm -hmm. neighborhoods mm -hmm. uh, because what we learned about that was that uh, the state of Indiana, I believe it was, was actually uh, determining their, uh, their, their strategic planning for the building of prisons mm -hmm. based upon the third grade reading level mm -hmm. of, of students in their state which is to say, if you're not ready by the age of eight mm -hmm. to read it at grade level, the chances of you succeeding are really, really limited. They are. And what we, what we learned is that, you know, this early childhood education, pre-K work, is so crucial to helping uh, predict the success of, of, of kids throughout school that we're now actually seeing Texas take that more seriously. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about the progress of pre-K offerings in, in Texas? Sure, for example, in, in Dallas ISD, they've gone from 60% of eligible four-year-olds enrolled in pre-K to now 94% in a space of about five years. Mm -hmm. uh, part of what COMMIT did to help that effort was, uh, one, we organized a common pre-K enrollment campaign across all the school districts around the region mm -hmm. because media doesn't stop at a county line or a school district line. Mm -hmm. So how do we then pool media resources and basically talk about not only the importance of pre-K, but make it very easy for parents to know where to go and to access it. Go on website, type in a zip code address, here's the highest quality center closest to you, here's how you connect them, use texting platforms in Spanish and English and Spanish, etc. But it's critically important. The state of Texas, four in 10 kids meet the state standard in third grade reading for the entire state of Texas. Think about that, let's say that one more time. <laughs> Four in 10 kids meet the state standard in third grade reading in the state of Texas. Six in 10 don't. Wow. 225,000 kids every year mm -hmm. finish third grade, don't meet the state standard, and the vast, vast majority of them, guess what, are promoted to fourth grade. Right, right. And we never see subsequent academic achievement get materially above third grade achievement. So starting young is an absolutely crucial part of education reform mm -hmm. and opportunity for uh, those who are otherwise at risk. Right. And you know, you, you, you really were talking a little bit there about uh, transcending localism and, and using more um, communication across districts and those mm -hmm. sorts of things. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, we, we often hear uh, the argument that uh, 
th there needs to be local control mm -hmm. of, of school districts. And, and while we all want, I think, uh, local involvement and, and, and real uh, investment from our, our local um, parents and community leaders and the like, it, it seems like in a, in a world that now is uh, so connected, uh, so uh, not only where geography doesn't matter as much, but informationally we're so connected and we, we have, uh, uh, the state has a, a key role to play. That localism it has to be re-examined. Could you say something about uh, about the tension you see between the argument for local control and the need for cooperation across districts and whatnot? Well, just a point of comparison, for example, in the state of Florida, which is a very large state, as you know, almost as big as Texas, they have 67 school districts, one for every county. Mm -hmm. We have 1,200 school districts in wow. the state of Texas. Wow. We have 15 in Dallas County alone. Wow. And so part of what we try and do is be almost like a connective tissue to yeah. try and make sure that each district knows best practices and who's getting some great success in trying some strategy on whether it's third grade reading or mm -hmm. post-secondary access or Algebra one or whatnot so that we kind of connect them and make sure that they're aware of it. Yeah. Uh, and then also we're obviously trying to be a strong advocate, uh, particularly at the state level, for adequate policy and adequate resources to, if we set a state goal of what we want to achieve, we, we got to try and make sure we got the resources to go execute it. Um, and I think it's a, it's a push-pull, right? But I think right now, I've, rightfully so, citizens are getting increasingly frustrated that so much of their public school dollars uh, are not necessarily staying in education or not necessarily staying in the district where they pay them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a lot of debate and discussion about that. Um, I just feel like we've got to figure out, we're not getting the outcomes as a region mm. and as a state, and we've got to figure out how to, how to fix that. And part of that is policy and part of that is funding. I want to get into two more things uh, before we uh, extend the conversation into funding sure. a little more. But yeah. uh, the, the, the first is about uh, the, the creativity of choices within DISD mm -hmm. and the district and how uh, Williams Prep uh, has has been uh, a part of creating an alternative there where mm -hmm. charters fit, and then also talk a little bit about uh, the Dallas Promise program too, okay. extending to college. So, so focusing a little bit on uh, Dallas, we've seen some incredible improvement in mm -hmm. DISD. It just received in the ADF scoring system a, a, a B, mm -hmm. uh, which you know w is really uh, We wouldn't surprising. think that about Dallas, would we, right? We, well, uh, part of the thing is to change the narrative, right? right? Is, to, is to help people understand what's really so. Yeah. Dallas received a B in, in this, which is hard data statistics mm -hmm. uh, that went into this, and yet the district is still 95% uh, non-white, correct, uh, which is st remarkable throughout urban districts, I think, for this to be the case. Right. How has Dallas begun to make those changes in terms of creating choices within the district and refocusing efforts around at-risk schools? Well, there's two primary strategies that jump out at me. One that they've done that I, I think is really resonating and I hope continues to spread, which is creating schools of choice that appeal to all parents and then income control. 
So 50% of the school is capped in terms of being non-low income and 50% is low income. There's lots of national research about the benefits of income integration within a school. Right. And so, for example, solar prep for girls and solar prep for boys in East Dallas, those are schools that the highest demand drivers, because there's so much more demand than supply, they have a lottery, mm -hmm. uh, that are coming from the, the Lakewood area or mm -hmm. coming from private schools. Mm -hmm. They see the value in a diverse school. They right. see the value in income integration. They see the value in these schools are single gender. And so that's a big positive. And so creation of more schools like that that control for income, I think, would be helpful in creating the, 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 the mutual connectivity we need as a, as a community. Um, the second thing that they've been doing is creating, for example, early colleges so that students can get an associate's degree by the time they get a high school degree. That has now been spread to every single comprehensive high school wow. in the city of Dallas. Wow. And there's just so many things that Dallas has done that they're now serving, and I know this because I've been sitting down in Austin, serving as almost a, a, a statewide model for what is what can be done within urban high poverty urban public schools to kind of change their outcomes and equally important change the narratives so the middle class comes back into the school district. Right. And that is you know, paying your best teachers more and sooner, same thing with principals, school choice, uh, massive growth in pre-K enrollment, uh, early college, a whole host of things. It's, it, it's probably counterintuitive to middle class and upper class white uh, citizens to to realize the advantage of this mix of income and racial ethnic mm -hmm. um, diversity in the schools and how that actually strengthens the education model rather than weakens it mm -hmm. because it, it you know since desegregation it's obvious that we've had white flight to the suburbs uh, to with with the assumption that therefore we'll have stronger character in schools and better education and those sorts of things uh, but it, it, it's odd to think about how you're going to be in a very diverse workplace someday right. and working with all sorts of people but not having the cultural intelligence mm -hmm. that comes from early experiences of being in schools with people who don't look the same or whose family life and, and income uh, isn't the same as yours. I, agree. I mean, think about this. The, the state of Texas uh, today as, a, as in terms of its kids, K through 12, I think is 30, 35% Anglo. So 65% right. students of color. Right. And so if, you're, if your kids only grow up in a bubble, right. both by income and by race, it's mm -hmm. just really hard. And it goes both ways. Uh, I've had conversations mm -hmm. with students who've gone to uh, charter schools, for example, who went to a school that was 100% Hispanic or 100% African American. Right. And they suffer with the same issues when they go to college, and now their colleges are more diverse than the high school that they went right. to. Right? Right. So it, it, I think diversity is, is, the, is the fruit of what we need to make sure that everybody understands. And, and how do we expose our children to that as soon as possible is critically important. It, 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 it's an odd thing because, it's, yes, it's diversity, but underneath it all, one blood, one, we're one, yeah. one human race. There's only one race. That's it's right. human. That's right. And so all of these are socially constructed div divisions that we have mm -hmm. with each other. Uh, there, yep. there really are no biological differences between people who are black or white or brown. Sure. Uh, these different uh, dark hair, of, blonde hair. <laughs> precisely. We, right. we are one people, and it's it's just striking how it has. How, how much we reinforce this uh -huh. uh, with our, uh, our, our, our self-selected segregation based uh -huh. upon things that are not driven by medical biological data or uh, human research into the brain or anything of that nature. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And I think it seeps into our adults' livelihood. It seeps, seeps into our politics. 
all right. sorts of things today. Well, and it's in our churches too. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I look out on a sea of white faces week in and week out, and uh, I think uh, you know it's 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 a painful reality. I I acknowledge that yes, there's differences in musical style and in worship tradition and mm -hmm. things of that nature. But it's not just that. It's it's also what our neighborhoods look like. Uh, it's also how we, we, we choose to order the way we slant our take on the Christian faith, say, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to be more about our concerns rather than our neighbors. And so the, the more we learn to, uh, to, to reach out and listen to one another and, 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 and integrate more deeply, the more I hope our churches even transform, not just our schools. I agree with you, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, Todd, we have, um, we have a lot more to talk about. I, would, it just, would you just give us one little uh, hint about the Dallas Promise program? And uh, we'll follow up a little more about that, I think, in our next conversation together. But tell us a little more about Dallas Promise. So the, the Dallas Promise is a program that provides a free tuition pathway, in many cases through a Bachelor's of Arts uh, completion in the Dallas County region. Uh, we are a backbone entity that supports that effort, and it's really about changing uh, expectations of every kid in every high school in the Dallas County about that, what college means to them, what it can mean for their lifetime, and how do we connect them to a living wage uh, a, a certificate or, or credential and, and a job. People who look like us, who have kids that go through uh, elementary school and high school, they have a total expectation mm -hmm. that this is just another step in their educational journey. Mm -hmm. There will be college to follow. There mm -hmm. will be a plan for them to be able to pay for that. Mm -hmm. That's really not been true in the non-white communities. Right? It, it hasn't been. And uh, even for someone like me who grew up, my parents would tell me, you're going to college. Right. You, uh, we don't know how you're going to pay for it. Right? We don't know how right. we're going to pay for it. So right. do really well in school and right. we, scholarships will help. Right? right? But it was clearly imbibed in, in my, that that was expected. And I think it, 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 here's the one quick thing I'll say. Dallas County and, and the state of Texas has the third lowest community college tuition rate in the country. It is half wow. of the average U.S. Pell Grant. Wow. If we can just get kids to fill out the FAFSA form, 13th and 14th grade in this entire state is free. Wow, it's, it's extraordinary to think about. And tremendous community colleges that we have of locally course. here as yeah. well. Yeah. Thanks so much, Todd. We're grateful to have you here on Good God, and we look forward to more. Thanks. Okay. Appreciate it. Terrific. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location production facilities. Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more, think less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons. The Commit Partnership is focused on the powerful idea that every child in Dallas County should receive an excellent and equitable public education, preparing them to flourish in college and beyond. The partnership works with public and private schools, colleges and universities, foundations, nonprofits and businesses to solve DFW's biggest educational challenges. Find out how you can take the journey with us. Visit thecommitpartnership.org.